Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world, under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this, look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over, it's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity, and so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham. And he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need. All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance, and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs, and like there's not enough. And it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoiled party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously, even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like, sell your possessions and give to the poor, or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is gonna go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends and he suffered. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life and scarcity back into abundance. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, 
you know the gift of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun. Yes, he called it the kingdom of God. And our invitation to this party is yet another gift, the personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host just like Jesus did. Yeah, and when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere with our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next six weeks. They did it in six minutes. I'm going to take six weeks. So. And we're going to start actually with that passage from Paul that they uh, just referenced there at the end, 2 Corinthians 8. And we're going to actually back up one verse before the one listed in your bulletin, 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 9. And as you're finding your way there, um, I just want to take a brief moment to promo something that we're going to be starting up in a couple of weeks. Um, Basically, earlier this year, our council voted uh, to end our uh, traditional Sunday night service here at Ivanrest Church. Um, but when uh, our council made that decision, Matt and I proposed uh, to try something different in its place. Uh, we're calling it sun Sunday night because we're really original like that. And uh, the basic idea is this. First of all, we'll have a number of elements uh, that will look similar to how our traditional evening worship service used to look here at Ivanrest. So if you uh, used to attend that service, parts of it should look at least somewhat familiar. Uh, for instance, we'll sing uh, traditional songs and hymns together. We'll have uh, times of prayer, and we'll also have a Bible teaching time. That Bible teaching time is going to look a little bit different, though, and that's probably going to be the biggest difference uh, between what we used to do and what we're going to try out. Um, and that's because we're actually, in, at Sunday night, we're actually going to look at and talk about the same text that I preach on in the Sunday morning worship service. And here's why. Um, most weeks, I can't possibly get to everything in a given text that I might like to in the Sunday morning sermon. Um, one of my seminary professors used to say, a sermon is like an iceberg. Uh, the same way that you only see the top 10 or 15% of an iceberg in the water and the other 85 or 90% 90, uh, 90 of the iceberg is under the water. He said, sermons are like that. You go into your study as a pastor, you read all these commentaries, you do all this work to understand the original languages, the original context, everything that's going on in the text, and then you bring about 10 or 15% uh, into the, the pulpit on Sunday morning. And the rest you kind of have to leave on the cutting room floor. Well, one thing that we're going to try in these uh, Sunday night uh, times uh, together is I'm going to bring an outline of all of that additional material that I would have liked to have gotten to in the Sunday morning service and instead talk through some of that kind of deeper level stuff uh, on Sunday night. It'll also allow you all the opportunity as congregation members to come with questions that you might have on that text. Hey, you didn't get to this verse or you didn't really talk that much about this. What does that look like? And what it'll give us the opportunity to do, to do together is sort of pop the hood a little bit more on some of those deeper issues in the text. Um, it'll allow you the opportunity to be uh, curious and ask questions. It'll allow me the opportunity to get some 
as some of the other nerdy stuff that I would have liked to in the morning. And uh, the hope is that together uh, we can come to a greater understanding of God's word as we make our way through different passages and sermon series. So we're going to be starting this up on Sunday, February 13. Uh, We'll have more details as we get closer to that date, but this is just a little preview uh, to get it in front of you. And I'll just say, by the way, that this sermon would be a great candidate for that because there's a lot we're going to talk about this morning, but we're not doing it tonight, so you just uh, have to hold on to those questions. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, this is what it says. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians back then, as well as to us as Christian believers today. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we kindled within you, excel also, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, as a parent, there are many things that while you hope your children do them, you can't really require or command them to do. There are some things that you can command, right? Clean your room, that's a command. Do your homework, pick up your toys, put away your clothes. Those are things that a parent can insist on, require, and expect to have their children do. But there are other things that are a little more gray, right? You hope that your children do them, but you can't really force them to. Being nice, for instance, telling the truth, being willing to apologize or share with others. While those are things that we hope that our kids do, and we actually hope that they will want to do them, it's kind of hard to legislate that sort of stuff, right? You can't really give a command, be nice, and have it followed the same way as you can pick up your clothes. Well, it turns out that the same thing goes for the Christian concept of generosity. At least that's what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying in this text. As Christians, we should be generous. We should want to give to others, both in terms of our money, but also in terms of our time and our talents. We should want to bless those who are less fortunate than us. But as Paul tells us here in this passage, it's not actually a command. I am not commanding you, he says in verse 8. Rather, he says that as Christians, our generosity and giving is simply something that we should do, even if we're not required to. Now, that might sound a bit strange. After all, if you've grown up in the church like me, you might be thinking, okay, so generosity isn't a command as Christians? Um, because it sure seems like it is. If it's not, then what's all this stuff that I've heard all my life, all this time I've spent in the church about tithing 10%? It seems like, at the very least, that's a command, right? And that's been the historical belief of the church, um, regardless of whatever else we might say about Christian generosity, at least when it comes to finances. Most Christians have kind of talked about that 10% tithe as, as sort of a baseline, a minimum, a starting point for what we're supposed to give as Christians, uh, 10% of our income. I've heard people quibble over the years over whether that 10% should be on your uh, Uh, either before taxes or after taxes, so either your gross or your take-home pay. But that's the percentage that Scripture gives us, 10%. That's what Scripture teaches, mandates, and commands, right? 
that's certainly what I was brought up to, to believe. I used to get an allowance of $1 a week, and I was given it in dimes, and that first dime always had to go into the offering plate at church because it was 10%. You remember that, Mom and Dad? I do. My parents are here, so <laughs> it's getting dangerous for them because I'm, I'm the preacher. Um, that's what I believed, right? But when I started researching this series, I was actually surprised to discover that the traditional baseline tithe of 10% is a bit of a complicated issue, at least when it comes to biblical interpretation. And so before we talk about anything else when it comes to this concept of generosity in this series, I think we need to start there. Talk a little bit about the, the, the historical 10% tithe and what it means for us as Christians today. Now, we get that idea of tithing 10% from the Old Testament. Uh, the first place that we actually see it come up is Genesis chapter 14. In that chapter, the Old Testament patriarch Abram has actually just fought a battle against a couple of kings to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been captured by those kings along with his family and taken off uh, into exile. And so Abram goes after that, those kings. He defeats them. And then after the battle, Abraham has this weird, interesting interaction with a mysterious priest king named Melchizedek. The text says this. Then, after the battle, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then after they kind of celebrate Abram's victory over those kings together, the writer of Genesis adds, referring to the spoils that Abram captured during the battle, then Abram gave him, that's Melchizedek, a tenth of everything, a tenth of all the spoils that he had won in the battle. And so that's the first place that we see this idea of tithing 10% in Scripture. It's Abram's grateful response to God via a gift to Melchizedek for giving him victory in this battle. Another place we see it, though, is at the end of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 33. And this is the passage that most people cite as the biblical basis for the 10% tithe. This is what it says. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. So like I said, this is the passage that most people commonly cite as backing for uh, Christians tithing 10%. And yeah, I don't know about you, but when I first reread this passage in preparation for the sermon, I was surprised at how unstraightforward it is. Anyone else feel that way? Um, you know, I was expecting when I read this passage, because this is the biblical basis for the 10% tithe, for it to say something like, tithe 10% of everything. That's just what you do. That's what you're supposed to do. So go ahead and do it. That's the minimum for your generosity. But that's not really what it says, is it? Um, in fact, it doesn't say anything nearly that straightforward. All it really says is every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod is holy to the Lord. But that's not nearly as direct a command about tithing 10% as I thought it would be, or at least as I grew up thinking we had in the church. And so let's talk about that. 
And fair warning, we're going to get a little bit into the weeds of biblical interpretation here and how we apply the different laws of the Old Testament. Um, But just stick with me. Hopefully it'll pay off. You can let me know after the sermon. When it comes to this question of tithing 10% in the Old Testament and how to apply that to ourselves today, it's important to understand that there are really three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Okay? First, there are what are called the civil laws of the Old Testament. So these are all the laws that God gave the nation of Israel to govern their society uh, together as the nation of Israel. So some examples would be all the laws that you read in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about things like determining boundaries between different people's properties, setting the weights and scales that the Israelites used for both their taxes and also their commerce and their currency, and how to structure the government and judicial systems in their society. And while those laws were important to the Israelites back then, we don't believe that those laws are still in force for us today. I don't know anyone who determines their lot in their neighborhood using boundary stones the way that the Israelites did, okay? Um, Those were laws that made sense in ancient Israel, but they wouldn't work very well to govern modern American society anymore. I'll give you another, another example. Cars. Think of all the laws that we have today that pertain to automobiles. Well, the Old Testament civil laws in no way imagined anything like that. And so it's hard to apply them to us today. Those civil laws in Scripture worked in that time and place for that nation and society. And while they're still interesting to read about and they give us good context on the nation of Israel and on our reading of the Old Testament, we don't believe that they're still binding on us the same way that they were for the Israelites back then. And we don't believe that either about the next category of Old Testament laws, which are the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were all the laws and commands that had to do with the Israelites' religious observances and worship of God. So, for instance, it's all the laws about things like the various religious festivals that the Israelites participated in, the sacrifices that they were required to make at the temple and when they were required to make them, and then what are called the holiness codes about things like clean and unclean foods and molds and diseases and how you become clean again or pure again if you get defiled in one of those different ways. And we don't follow those laws anymore either. We don't believe that they're in force for us as Christians. And the reason we don't believe that those ceremonial laws are in force for us is because we believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled them, right? We don't offer sacrifices because we believe that at the cross, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for us. We don't believe that we need to follow all the different festivals and religious observances of the Old Testament Israelites because we believe that Jesus fulfilled the significance of all those festivals. And instead, we have new holidays that commemorate what he did for us. But we don't follow the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacles or all those sorts of things anymore. And we also don't follow those holiness codes. If you've ever eaten bacon, you're out of line. And we don't try to constantly make ourselves pure when we do stuff like that either because, again, at the cross, we believe that Christ made us pure and redeemed us and sanctified us as his people. And so just like with the civil laws, we don't follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws as Christians anymore. But we do still follow what are called the moral or ethical laws of the Old Testament. And the moral and ethical laws of the Old Testament basically governed two things. They governed, first of all, our vertical relationship with God, and they also governed our horizontal relationship 
with each other as human beings. And so the Ten Commandments are a great example of this, all right? For instance, the first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's one of those vertical laws governing our relationship with God. But if you read the second half of the Ten Commandments, you see a lot of those horizontal laws, things like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Those are moral and ethical laws about how we interact together with each other as human beings. And those laws, the moral and ethical ones in the Old Testament, are still in force for us today as Christians. Jesus' coming fulfilled to a large degree the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, but his coming did not fulfill the moral or ethical laws. They are still binding on us. In in fact, if anything, Jesus' coming only strengthened those laws. That's something that we see uh, right towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Because instead of doing away with commands like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie, Jesus actually intensifies them. He says, not only should you not murder, you should not hate. Not only should you not commit adultery, you should not lust. Not only should you not lie, but you should not even take oaths, at least oaths that you're using simply to manipulate people. In other words, the moral and ethical laws of the Old Testament aren't less binding on us because of Jesus. They're actually more binding on us because of him. The point is, and this is the reason why I bring all this up, when it comes to reading through the Old Testament and these various laws, we need to be discerning about what kind of law we're dealing with. Is it a a civil one, a ceremonial one, a moral or ethical one? Because our answer to that question determines in large part how we apply it to our lives today as Christians. So let me ask you, what kind of law do you think the command about tithing in Leviticus 27 was? Was it a civil one? a ceremonial one, or a moral or ethical one? I actually don't know that I've got a firm answer on that anymore. It's my way out of it. I don't know. Um, I actually think depending on which tithe you're talking about in the Old Testament, and we'll get to that in a second because there isn't just one, there's actually multiple, you could make a case for any of those three, Moral and ethical, civil or ceremonial, or maybe even a combination of them. My point, though, is that this idea of a 10% tithe being commanded in the Old Testament isn't as straightforward as I used to think. And maybe some of you are starting to feel the same way. To add to the not-so-straightforwardness of all of this, it turns out that the Old Testament doesn't command just one tithe, that actually commands multiple tithes. That's because, as John Cortines and Gregory Baumer detail in their book, God and Money, the average Israelite in the Old Testament was actually commanded to give three tithes. The first was what was known as the Levitical tithe. It was the, an annual 10% tithe that the Israelites gave to support the ministry of the Levites, which was Israel's priestly class in their work at the temple in Jerusalem. It's outlined in Numbers 18, verses 20 through 24, if you want to look it up later. But basically what it says is that because the Levites weren't given an inheritance of land in the promised land, their inheritance was instead their ministry before the Lord at the temple, the rest of Israel was called to care for and and take care of their needs, basically to provide them with food and with the resources that they needed to be able to survive through their offerings. And this tithe, the the Levitical tithe, was how Israel did that. It's how they took care of their priests. Then, second... 
There was the festival tithe, which you can find in Deuteronomy 12, verses 17 through 19, 14, verses 22 through 27, and 26, verses 10 through 16. This was another 10% tithe, normally made up of the first 10% of an Israelite's harvest that they were to collect each year. The only difference is that instead of giving this tithe away to others, you know, to support the Levites or someone else, Israelite families were actually called to take this 10% tithe and put it in storage for themselves because this was the food that they would bring with them when they would go to worship at the temple in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles each fall. Um, It was kind of a bring-your-own-meal festival, Tabernacles. And so the Israelites took this 10% tithe, sort of put it in storage, you know, canned it, whatever, and then brought it with them. And that's what they ate along the way. And then also, especially in their celebration of that Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Okay. Then finally, there was the charity tithe. This one is outlined in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 through 29. It was another 10% tithe. But the difference between this one and the others is that it was only offered some years, not all. Okay. Uh, basically, it was given to support the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among the, uh, among the Israelites in the third and sixth year of every seven-year cycle. Makes total sense, right? Clear as mud? Great. So in other words, the Israelites weren't commanded to, to give just one 10% tithe. They were actually commanded to give three, a 10% annual Levitical tithe, a 10% annual festival tithe, and a 10% charity tithe twice every seven years. And citing biblical scholar Craig Blomberg, Cortines and Balmer write that the Israelites actually probably gave closer to 23% of their annual income, not the 10% we normally hear about. Or you could make a case that since they kept the festival tithe for themselves as food for the journey and part of that festival, they gave 13%. Okay? Now, before you storm out, if you're thinking I'm about to tell you you need to start tithing 13 or 23% instead of 10, stay with me. Because all of this brings us back to what Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians. First, the context of 2 Corinthians 8 is important. Basically, at some point in his ministry of planting churches in Macedonia and Greece, Paul started to collect an offering for the church back in Jerusalem. And uh, we don't really know why he started doing this. Um, To be honest, outside of Paul's letters, where it does come up a number of times, uh, no other books in the New Testament mention this collection that Paul was taking from the Greek and Macedonian churches. Um, But the main reason that scholars have suggested why he started doing this is because the church in Jerusalem was likely a much poorer community than the churches that Paul was working with in Greece and Macedonia. And so he started asking the Greek converts to the gospel in the churches that he was establishing around Greece and Macedonia to support their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And many of them did. In fact, as Paul details in the first few verses of this chapter, some of those Greek churches even gave to the believers in Jerusalem in the midst of their own hardship and difficulty. But for whatever reason... The Corinthians had stopped. Uh, It seems like they had started giving to this collection at one point. In fact, Paul implies as much in his previous letter to them. Right at the end, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he mentions that they've started taking up this offering. But somewhere along the line, they decided to end their participation in this multi-church collection for the church back in Jerusalem. And so what Paul is, is writing to them here in this passage is he's encouraging them to restart their participation. In fact, right after our text for this morning, he writes this. Here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work 
so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. In other words, what Paul is saying is finish what you started. Restart your collection. Pick it back up. Get it going again so that you can participate in this offering that we're taking for our brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian Christians to resume their participation in this multi-church offering for the believers in Jerusalem. But notice how he encourages them to restart their participation. He doesn't tell them to. He doesn't command them to. In fact, he says he's not commanding them here. Instead, what Paul does is he grounds this appeal for the Corinthian believers to be generous in the generous grace that they themselves have received from God through Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, I would say, is the true biblical motive for generosity as Christian believers. If you hear nothing else from this sermon this morning, I want you to at least hear this. The biblical motive for our generosity as Christians is the generous grace that we have received from God through Jesus Christ. After all, percentages are kind of arbitrary, right? Uh, I say that because for some people, a 10% tithe is kind of difficult to manage. I know situations like this. I've known of believers where they couldn't give 10% even if they wanted to. Um, because of their circumstances, their finances, other priorities, things like keeping the rent paid, the lights on, food on the table, 10% would be a real stretch for them. In fact, 7% would, 5%, 3%. It would all be pretty diff- difficult for them. But for others, given their circumstances, 10% doesn't feel like much at all. You know, they could even add up all those Old Testament ties and give 13%, 23%, maybe even more than that. And yet, Paul doesn't ground our generosity as Christians in any of that. Instead, what he does here is he grounds our generosity in Christ. Don't think about what you need to give when you're giving, he says. Think about what Christ has done and given for you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Rich in what? Rich in forgiveness, rich in his mercy, rich in his grace, rich in salvation. That's the motive for our generosity as Christians. It's not, it's not a percentage. It's not a dollar amount. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing so much as it's a response to Christ and what he's done for us. His generosity towards us, his sacrifice for us, his grace towards us is what motivates our generosity and sacrifice for others. In a word, our generosity as Christians boils down to gratitude. It's about thankfulness. That's what motivates our generosity as believers. It's a grateful response to everything that Christ has done for us. And what that means is that for some of us, that might look like 10%. For others of us, it might look like less. For others of us, it might look like more. The specifics of percentages and dollar amounts are probably somewhat dependent on our means. But the motive for all of us, regardless of our means, is the same. Gratitude to God for the generous grace he's given us through the sacrifice of his son. That's what motivates us to be generous people. After all, if you really think about it, we don't deserve anything from God, do we? 
This, this thought kind of struck me a number of years ago when, when I was thinking through this idea of God's grace. Even the fact that he created in the first place is an act of his grace. God didn't have to. He was self-sufficient. He didn't need us. He didn't need this world. His creation in the first place is an act of grace. So is making this creation, this world, sustainable for life and for our life. He chose to create us out of his love, out of his overflowing love. And he didn't have to make us in his image. He didn't have to make us for relationship with him. And here's the real kicker. He didn't have to do anything to fix our relationship with him after we fell into sin either. And yet he did. Every step of the way, he offered his grace to us. He blessed us. He bestowed his goodness on us. He lavished us with his love. And he generously gave us more than we could ever have hoped for or imagined. And in response to that, in response to his grace, his generosity, his mercy, his love, we are called to do the same. And to illustrate that, I'd like to tell you a story. Uh, we did a sermon series like this at the last church I served back in Wisconsin, uh, Brookfield CRC, just outside Milwaukee. And as part of that, we set up an email account, generosity at brookfieldcrc.org. And we set up that email account, and we asked our congregation to send us ideas for how we could be generous as a church community. As we made our way through this sermon series talking about generosity, we said, send us your ideas about how we could be generous. And it wasn't to benefit our church. Um, you know, a, Brookfield is a church a lot like this, where financial needs were always magically taken care of. I mean, I'm pre it's kind of ironic. I'm preaching on generosity a month after we just had our best giving month ever. Um, that's why I'm a little nervous even preaching about this. And also, thank you. Um, but that wasn't the idea of that, of that email account. It was actually to see how we could be generous outside of our community, outside the four walls of our congregation there. And so what we told people was, as we talk about generosity, if ideas come to your mind about ways that we could be generous towards others, send them our way. Send them to that email address. And so over the course of that sermon series, the, the folks there came up with a lot of good ideas. Some of them were local, and they were specific to our context there in Milwaukee. Um, some of them were a little further out. I remember uh, specifically we had a, a very strong connection with Rehoboth uh, Christian Schools and CRC um, in New Mexico. And so there were some ideas that revolved around our work with Rehoboth. And some of them were even broader than that, tying in the missionaries that we supported around the world. One of the ideas, though, had to do with a nonprofit organization that we had partnered with for a number of years in Mozambique, Africa. Put simply, one of our longtime members at the church had gotten involved with Partners Worldwide a few years before that. If you don't know what Partners Worldwide is, it's basically a Christian nonprofit that connects Christian business people and entrepreneurs here in the United States with business people and entrepreneurs in parts of the developing world uh, for mutual encouragement and mentorship and those sorts of things. And so this guy had gotten involved with Partners, and he had been partnered with a, a chicken and egg farm in Mozambique, which made sense because he had actually grown up on a chicken farm in Iowa. Now, during that sermon series at Brookfield, he told his partners there what we were talking about, what we were doing, and he said, hey, is there any way that we could bless you and be generous towards you? And they responded, and they said, yeah, actually, we have a real big need right now for clean water, both for drinking, also for irrigating their crops, and also for providing the chickens with water. And so he sent an email to the generosity account and said, hey, what if we drilled a couple wells for this community? What if we raise money to drill some wells for this community in Africa? And uh, over the course of time, that's the idea that rose to the top. And so we started to look into that. How could we as a church be generous and drill some wells for this community in Africa? 
After a bit of research, our church leadership decided that we could probably drill 10 wells out there. At the cost of a couple thousand bucks each, it was going to be fifty to $60,000. But we thought, you know what? Everyone's excited about this sermon series. Let's throw it out to the congregation. Um, and so we started to make plans to launch an initiative aimed at drilling 10 wells in, in that community. As the process continued, though, God started to lead us to dream a little bigger. And I can't for the life of me remember how we started down this road. But at one point, we began to wonder, what about... Instead of simply drilling a couple of wells there, we were to send them a well-drilling rig. You ever heard the phrase, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day? Teach a man a fish, he eats for a lifetime? That was kind of the idea there. Because on their campus of this chicken and egg farm, they had an ag school where they taught people from the surrounding community the basics of farming, but also things like farm equipment, operation and maintenance, irrigation, different things like that. And we thought they'd be able to handle a well drilling rig if we sent it to them. And we also asked them, and they said, yeah. We didn't want to just send it to them. And they're like, what is this? And so we started to get a little excited. And so we decided to refocus on that. We actually reached out uh, to a company, a well drilling company, uh, about an hour north of us in Wisconsin. We said, hey, here's our, our, our idea. Here's what we're doing as a church. What do you think? What would that look like? Turns out that the cost was a bit higher, sixty to eighty thousand dollars, but again we felt we could do it. And so we put it to the congregation and we set our goal at seventy-five thousand dollars. And we said, let's raise this money to send a well drilling rig to our friends in Africa, in Mozambique. And the congregation responded. I mean, they got excited. We had people who were having garage and yard sales, and then rather than keeping the proceeds for themselves, just donating it to the project. We had kids who set up lemonade stands. And, and donated the proceeds from that uh, to it. We had some creative people who figured out their water consumption in a year and what that amounted to, and we're donating that each month. And so we even had the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the local newspaper, heard about the story and published an article on it. So we had people from outside our church in the Milwaukee community who were jumping in and donating and sending us checks too. And over three months, we tracked the progress. In April, we, we raised almost $25,000. In May, just over 10000 Through four weeks in June, we raised $23,000, but there was a fifth Sunday that month. And on that final Sunday, we raised just under $40,000 for a grand total of $98,604. It's one of the coolest things I've ever been involved with. And it was this amazing testimony to what God's people can do when they catch a vision of his generosity and what he's given us. And that's when we started running into roadblocks. Because first we realized that the kind of rig we needed to handle the soil in Mozambique was way different than the kind of soil in Wisconsin. Again, something you think we would have checked on. Um, no problem, because that well drilling company that we were working with were so excited by what we were doing, they said, just give us what you've raised, and we'll subsidize the rest of the cost. Uh, then we realized that while the rig we'd bought, like most vehicles in our country, had a left side driver's cab, they drive on the other side of the road in Mozambique. So we needed to convert it to a right side driver's cab. And again, no problem, because one of our members owned his own trash disposal company, and their fleet had right side driver's cabs. And so they were, had gotten pretty good at converting vehicles that way. And so what they actually did was they brought the rig to their shop. They lifted the entire well uh, drilling apparatus off of the chassis of the original cab, drove it out from underneath it, backed in another one that was a right-side driver cab, lowered it back down, welded it on, free of charge. Next, we realized that we actually needed to ship the rig to Mozambique. 
That meant getting it to the coast, putting it on a boat, and then paying for it to sail to the port in Nakala, Mozambique. And it sounds silly to say, but we just had not budgeted for that. Because <laughs> we got so excited about the project that we didn't think about the fact that you can't drive to Mozambique. Um, and again, no problem, because a small group of our members got together and said, we will cover the cost ourselves. And in the end, the whole project ended up costing about $125,000. But it was well worth it, pun definitely intended. Get it? Yeah, okay, you got it. Because that ag school at that farm in Mozambique still uses that rig to this day. They have drilled multiple wells around their own community. They have trained countless students on that rig, so now they have an additional skill set and profession that they can work in in Mozambique, and occasionally the government of Mozambique even pays them to take it around the country and drill wells elsewhere in Mozambique. It's a truly amazing story of what God's generosity towards us can motivate us as his people to do. And here's the part I'm really scared to say. We've set up a similar email address here. Generosity at IvanRestCRC.org. And we're looking for ideas too. And they don't need to be that big and audacious. That was simply what God led our congregation to do there at Brookfield. But they can be, if you want. Or they can be smaller. That's fine, too. Because the question I want us to simply consider as a church is what could God lead us to do here at Ivanrest? What are the needs that we see in our own community? What are the opportunities we have in our relationships with others? What are the things that God might call us to do in response to the generous grace that he has bestowed on us? And I am terrified to be even doing this this morning. All week long, I've thought about the sermon and thought, let's just take that email account out. Because what if this falls flat on its face? You know, I haven't even been here a year. Do I even have the buy-in to do something like this? I don't know. Will anyone respond? Will we get a single email? And if we do, what do we do with that? But I decided to just throw caution to the wind and follow the Spirit's prompting because that's how this whole thing started at Brookfield, too. That whole amazing story of sending a well-drilling rig to Africa simply started as a question, what might God lead us to do in response to his grace? And that's the question I want us to consider. And if it goes somewhere, great. And if it doesn't, I guess I'll be fine with that too. What could that look like here? What might God place on our hearts? What might he lead us to do? No idea, I would say, is too big or too small, too crazy or too ordinary, too mundane or too scary. Send them our way. And as we spend the next couple of weeks talking about what it looks like to be generous as God's people in this world, generous believers in Christ, let's see what God might lead us and motivate us to do as a church. Because after all, like we said, God has lavished his generosity on us. We refer to that as the gospel, right? It's the good news. It's the good news of how God's son, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor. Though he was honored and exalted, became lowly and meek. Though he was God himself, became one of us, to live among us, to teach us, to die for us, to rise to new life, and ultimately to give us that new life too. That's how generous he's been towards us. What might our response to his generosity look like as his people? Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your grace.
your incredible generosity towards us, Lord. You have bestowed so much upon us, lavished us with so much, blessed us with so much. God, thank you. Help us to live as generous people in response to, not just with our money, though that's mostly what we've talked about this morning, but also our time and our talents, all the gifts you've given us in every sense of that word. Help us to be generous people in response to your generosity to us. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I went long today. And our final song was called Unbroken Praise. But I'm going to make an executive decision that we're going to break our praise and not sing it. Because otherwise the nursery people are going to get angry with me. And I have to present Adult Gather and Grow too. So, and I warned Matt about this too. So um, I'm just going to go to announcements and then give you God's blessing. Okay. Our announcements this morning. First, we've got Adult Gather and Grow. Um, I'm teaching our final session on leadership in the church. We're doing that because we have nominations for elders and deacons right now, and we need uh, uh, nominees for leadership coming up in the next couple of months. So please prayerfully consider who you would like to nominate. We would like to have those in by next Sunday. Okay, Uh, so January 30. Uh, This is the final week of the January series this week, too. Uh, The lectures so far have been great. uh, We're a remote site here, so 1230 every week we'll have... uh, a live stream of the lectures over at Calvin University. Um, and then just a reminder that we've got a ton of stuff coming up, different events, different retreats, things like that. Um, so please keep an eye on your bulletins and newsletters as we begin the new year together and uh, we can participate in the life and community of our church together. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to stand and receive God's blessing this morning. Listen for the generosity in this blessing, okay? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, his abundant, generous, gracious peace. And all God's people said, amen.